Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that photos of the artwork described in this episode can be found at The Creationist Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. I think it's safe to say that we've all had a tendency to ignore the public art that is all around us in our daily lives, but as soon as we travel, our social feeds become cluttered with selfies in front of works of art that locals in that town otherwise ignore themselves. Glass artist David Pearl has been creating stunning works of art that have been incorporated into architecture and landscapes for several decades. David's artwork is affected by the environment, much like nature itself. You could sort of see a mountain in the distance every day, but one day suddenly there's some weird light effect, and you wow, go, wow, that looks amazing. So this tries to tie into that, wow, amazing kind of light effect, so that maybe one day something that you've never ever seen before is happening that might reacquaint your attention. When David and I started discussing where to conduct our interview, his suggestion was on the site of one of his most public works of art, the 407 subway station north of Toronto. There he created an oval skylight that threw a kaleidoscope of colors onto the subway platform and the trains pulling in and out of the station. He was eventually asked to add colorful sided escalators and a massive multicolored glass mural that dominates the station's main foyer. We're just here looking at the artwork for a few minutes. I did the artwork here in the station. Can we just go in there and come back out? We're not going anywhere. Okay, cool. thank you. Thank you. They took them a very long time to uh, start to select an artist, to start working with me. And they kind of said, well, we've got these meetings next week, come to a meeting next week. And I actually spent the weekend painting with acrylics on glass on the upper deck of the place I was staying, because it was summer, and just photographing them while I kind of spread this color. And I'd put layers of color and layers of color behind. So it was never ever a dry painting. It was always just this fluid sense of wet paint, which I still, which I wanted it to kind of have, like it was that immediacy of just being done as a brushstroke. But I never thought when I brought these ideas to them that it was anything other than tentative first steps before spending quite a bit more time on it. So I brought these ideas in and they went, great, we love it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you love it? <laughs> I already started. <laughs> so essentially then they, we got locked into this idea that this idea, there's a sort of notion in architecture that architecture starts from the hand, starts from drawing. That's the first move in architecture. So in a sense, the last move became a work by hand, the gesture of, of the hand, the sweeping gesture of, whether it's maybe the train speeding through or it's just the hand writ large in the architecture. But it's a sort of notion that everyone was sort of happy with. You know, you worry because a lot of architects are afraid of expression in architecture. They like, most of the stations, I think, have this notion of, let's keep it, you know, keep it architectural, keep it cool, keep it, let's not, let's not stick our head above the parapet artistically. So what they'd been quite taken with in my work before was where I was creating pieces that were animating architectural spaces with light. And the notion of some of those pieces aren't that there's anything to look at. There's only the effect on the space by the movement of light of the sun 
coming up, different angles, being very low in the winter, being very high in the summer. And that, but in this case, there was no denying the fact that there was an aspect to look at as well as that. So I knew at that point it had to have something to look at, but there wasn't any sort of sense that it was going to be a picture, but it had to be some way to achieve the kind of color that I wanted to project, but in a graphic presence. So that's why I went with this uh, process. <clears throat> now, what nobody knows is that to work with, it's not like digital printing. Digital printing doesn't illuminate. It's simply uh, an opaque presence on whatever it's printed on. And, but this is actually enamel frit. It's liquid, it's glass and a liquid medium that's finely ground. So it's actually enamel frit, which, in, which is done on all kinds of buildings. There's little dots and stuff, so you don't walk into it, called manifestation. And because I still wanted it to look like it had this surface of liquid paint, you know, we had to... It's, it's basically, I had these photographs I took of these paintings, this size. Let's face it, this is a huge thing to blow up to the scale. It's 45 meters wide. Um, and they have to, in a computer, uh, generate this at some point as a full-size piece of art that's the 45 meters wide at something like 600 DPI. So you've got huge, huge files that have to all be separated into pieces of film for each panel, and every color has its own uh, film to make a half-tone screen, and each of them are printed, and then each of them have to be laid out next to the other to make sure there's color consistency, one panel for the other. So basically, considering then all the works, they spent about 18 months making this because there is uh, 18 months making the artwork yeah okay so if you look over here follow this down see what you can't get now is the fact that this here all this by keep being kept transparent and casts you know I can send you pictures whatever but two weeks ago when I was here just casts lines of colors that'll all you can tell a little bit now that that actually looks orangey yeah. This looks yellowy and looks blue, but that becomes intense sweeps of color when the sun comes down. So all we'll do is go down and come uh, back up. Okay. So we'll see from below. The idea being is the, is the impact that this is intended to have like down here. So that I think it's the only uh, subway station that has natural light at all available to a subway platform, unless they're the ones that are above ground. Yeah. So, um, the idea is you sort of color, because everything else is gray or stainless steel, the colors should pick up on everything. Anything, all these surfaces are just picking up colors from the windows. Eh? So it becomes, becomes not just a fixed into the material, but it becomes part of a projection device into the other surfaces in the building. Um, so that's the only way I think that you truly get a completely integrated artwork that's part of the architectural language, which has always been the background of my training in this kind of field, is that it's is that it it's an extension of the architecture into an artistic expression that should find something between that combined resonance of being art and architecture that becomes a single statement, I guess. Did we want to do anything else there? Do you want to go back up there, or are we finished in here? I think we're finished. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah.
They should sell coffee in there. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up, and how did you become interested in art? So I grew up in rural Niagara area, Ontario, you know, just in that sort of Beamsville, Jordan countryside. But I kind of always knew I was going to be an artist. I probably missed a tremendous amount of schooling through drawing, through my own probably a lack of attention. Because then finally, I think when we moved schools into Stony Creek, you know, I was like, I hadn't learned anything. I had to, in a year and a half, get caught up to the end of grade eight to go to high school. <laughs> just because I would go through hundreds and pages of drawing. My father would bring paper home every day. I just drew all the time. Um, so, and my parents never saved any of the drawings because I can remember them, and I wish they had saved some. <laughs> you know? what, 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 what were you drawing? I would, I would draw narratives a lot, you know, so there'd be one kind of picture led to another. I... I drew profiles of heads with heads full of rooms a lot and things going on inside the rooms. I would like to see some of those now because I can remember doing that over and over. Um, But And then despite the fact, you know, in the family there were sort of lawyers and various people, but I went to art school, so I just went to Sheridan. Then I did the sort of uh, year off in Europe, the Middle East and India kind of thing because it's the early 70s and that was a lot of that going on. Um, and and on the way back from India, I just sort of had this notion. I knew that somebody I'd, I'd known that taught art in high school had gone on to teach stained glass in Sheridan. And I just thought, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to really feel like working now. So I'd, I'll go and study stained glass in Sheridan. But you couldn't just do stained glass. You still did the painting, the printmaking, whatever. And um, uh, somebody came... A guy named Robert Jekyll came to uh, to talk about what was happening in Europe in in the contemporary world of, of stained glass, which was people in Germany building very large-scale projects, post-war reconstruction, mostly still in churches, although I virtually don't work in churches at all because there aren't any new churches being built. But, of course, Germany was being rebuilt, so there's a tremendous amount of artwork going on in the buildings. And I thought, wow, this is great. You can have a whole building. <laughs> the whole building can be your frame. But it was an exciting, big-scale stuff. So I went to study in Wales, because at that time, there was a really notable course called you know, Architectural Glass or something, where you... Uh, and people came from all over the world there. There were Americans, Canadians, Greeks, Malaysians, Australians. Quite an international group of people came to the school in, in Wales to study contemporary applications for glass. And um, I thought I would probably come back and work in Canada. And there was a lot of going backwards and forwards between Canada and Britain. And because I was actually born there, my parents emigrated to Canada, I always had this, I could always stay and work there as well as work here. And there was a kind of taking off in the field of, of public art and stuff. The, this ad, the advent of, of the notion that a certain percentage of money towards buildings would be put into artwork for the buildings started in there, started in Britain before here. And that was a springboard to actually getting getting to do some projects. So even in my late 20s, early 30s, I was getting some big opportunities. That 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 project that we talked about on the telephone for uh, Missenden Abbey, which is called an abbey, but it had been in private hands for a long time and it was becoming a, a, a residential school at that time, was, I was still quite young, competing against very established people. But there was a kind of notion that, you know, there was something new happening and uh, people wanted, uh, wanted, wanted some... Uh, 
fresh blood, I guess, coming into this kind of work. So basically, from that time, uh, from 1983, when I did my first public commission in a center for uh, uh, European studies in North Wales, where as an artist in residence, I survived from my work, really. And because of the fact that nobody would say they're going to give you X thousands of pounds or X thousands of dollars for your artwork. But when it's being built as a component, as a freestanding component, or as a part of the architecture... It's understood that there are costs involved to produce materials and ship things and that you're spending a certain amount of time. And so it became quite legitimate and quite ordinary to have reasonable budgets, to be paid properly and have a reasonable budget for what you were doing. And it would never seem like, what, I'm not paying that. It was all like accountable. You have to have engineers, you have to, you know, you have, to have everything. So it was a good Training because then later um, I went on to do a master's in architecture in London, uh, studying with uh, a really quite famous uh, pop architect named Peter Cook, who who had all these fabulous ideas in the '60s <clears throat> that for inflatable buildings and pop-up buildings and mobile buildings. And he really influenced a whole generation of people like, um, that didn't influence them, he taught them, people like Zaha Hadid and Daniel Libeskin and and Al Saab, who did the school, all were students of his. And then I was a student of his at the very end of his professor, uh, being a professor in London. So that <clears throat> that, comp- that finally complemented that notion of being uh, knowledgeable enough to work in the milieu with architects and engineers and in that fabrication kind of field. So that was a compliment to that fine art starting out in Sheridan in the first place. I mean, when, I, when I've when i told people over the course of the last couple of weeks that I was interviewing a glass artist, I think a lot of people, you know, thought more traditionally with regards to stained glass and, you know, the, le- the lead yeah. outlines and whatnot, or at best, realistic paintings mm-hmm. on glass. Mm-hmm. My question is, what led to the style that you've developed? I guess I never assumed anything else other than the fact that it could be a contemporary art parallel with anything else that was happening in contemporary art. I didn't see any reason. It had to be in some little siding on a minor line on the outside of town that didn't really go anywhere. I always thought it could be, you know, a properly expressive contemporary mode of expression. Now, there's a kind of challenge to that notion if something is is attached to something, like it's in a building, maybe it's not real art because it's not like fine art in the sense that it's not a painting in a gallery that's a quite a recent notion of what constituted fine art i think if you look at in a sense western art to me is founded as a tradition through the catholic church as a patron all that art that went on in medieval times through the renaissance when there's either a combination of the catholic church and the medicis or whatever and a lot of that artwork, even right through the Renaissance, uh, Donatelli or Michelangelo or whatever, they're all working in architecture. They're locating it in a specific site in the building, and nobody ever says, well, that's not art, Michelangelo. <laughs> it's on the belief ceiling. <laughs> so I don't, I don't accept the notion that it, it, it can't be an expressive form. So in that sense, you know, the building... The buildings have changed. The buildings have a new language. And the notion that somehow or other to work traditionally is means that you copy some 
some tired style from the Victorian era. Is It wouldn't have been a tired style when it started. It would have been innovative. I always think traditional work is to do with constant innovation mm-hmm. rather than this copying of some figurative style. So, um, and the interesting thing about working with enameling is it was first introduced in something like the 16th century to, to stained glass. They discovered that they could have uh, liquid or applied enamels to fire it on the glass. In some ways, it's not any different than that. So you keep, you keep calling this liquid liquid glass? Well, no, it's, it's all an silkscreen enamel work, which is enamel frit, which is a finely ground glass in a liquid medium that's finely ground enough to be pressed through a silkscreen. I work with printers in the same way, <laughs> I'm not comparing myself, that to how uh, Picasso or any... Uh, um, Andy Warhol, whatever, would have used silkscreen, but it's all the same. It's silkscreen printing. It's doing films and printing. It's just printing with the material that can be fired into the surface of a glass and become a permanently fused layer with glass. I can only think of how there are people that look at what you've done here, Some of and some people see it as art, and some people who walk by it every day don't really pay attention to them. But as I think I said to you on the phone and as I said to my wife after I came from here, it's like it's, you know, it's like the people in Vancouver who have the mountains there. And they, you know, they sort of take them for granted. As an as an artist, uh, are you are you conflicted at all with regards to how people interact with your art because of it being environmental as opposed to what people more traditionally think of as something hanging. <laughs> well, people are, are probably people ignore art hanging on the wall as much as they would ignore any other art. Um, And familiarization makes you ignore something. But what's interesting about your mountain analogy is you could sort of see a mountain in the distance every day, but one day suddenly there's some weird light effect, and and wow, that looks amazing. So this tries to tie into that, wow, amazing kind of light effect, that maybe one day something that you've never ever seen before is happening that might reacquaint your attention. Whereas for the most part, painting is 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 shown and seen in a in in a consistent, properly white light balanced or whatever, kind of kept away from too much natural light that might damage it or whatever. So um it's a very important consideration for sure when you're doing it. One last question would be where do you find inspiration? Oh. Well, I probably find most of my inspiration in the natural world. Now, um, in the sense that I find the natural world more continuously rewarding than an urban world. That said, I, I do mostly only go to visit places for the architecture. I I really like architecture, and so I do go to see architecture. And I don't rely on pictures of a building to have any impression of it. I I think you have to see a building. And so I love architecture. So, um, but I probably, and so I will get some ideas or influence from that, but I think really my strongest interaction is with the natural world and phenomena that I encounter 
in the natural world. But I also tend to think that a lot of the natural world is incredibly abstract if you stop interpreting it into information or identification. And and so I do have a body of work as photography that I've done and I've been involved with a, with a few books. And I'm really interested in taking a completely straightforward picture of something that you can't tell what it is. Because if you disengage from identifying all the time, there can be quite unusual encounters in the natural world, particularly in terms of light or water or sky or things, and I don't mean sunsets, but just phenomena. So I suppose it comes from that, really. Although I don't tend to work directly from that other than as photography. So it's hard to see that that would come from that in some ways in my glasswork. Because then when it comes to a building, I'm more interested probably in the phenomenal ology of, of light in space. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If you'd like to find out more about David Pearl, go to david-pearl.com. You can also see photos of David's work by following The Creationist podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to comment on this episode, have suggestions for future episodes, or just say hi, email thecreationistpodcast at gmail.com. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast.